Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, beauty, and meaning. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me Kai Flannery, who is co-leading worship with me this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. Another of our traditions in Unitarian Universalist churches is that we start our services by lighting a chalice, which is one of the symbols of our faith. Please open your order of service and read with me the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is printed in the bulletin. It's on page four. If you would join me in this responsive reading, I'll read the bold, and you feel free to chime in for the italics. Now let us worship together. Now let us celebrate our highest values. Transcendence. To connect with wonder and awe of the unity of life. Community. Connect with joy, sorrow, and service with those whose lives we touch. Compassion, to treat ourselves and others with love. Courage, to live lives of honesty, vulnerability, and beauty. Transformation, to pursue the growth that changes our lives and heals our world. Now we raise up that which we hold as ultimate and larger than ourselves. Now we worship together. It was seven years ago now that this congregation discerned that set of religious values that we just read together. And out of those values arose our mission statement, our common purpose. And since then, we've used it to guide all of our decisions and ministries in this church. Recently, your board had another set of conversation with lots of folks in the church to figure out if we want to leave the mission as it is, change it a little bit, and they're still discerning that, as well as the ends that go along with it. The ends are kind of how would we know if we were living our mission in the world. But for now, we remain with this common purpose, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. So when Chris said that he was going to talk some about the brain this morning, I thought of my favorite Billy Collins poem, um, which I'd love to share with you this morning. And it's also kind of a good partner poem with Rumi's The Guest House. You know that poem that asks us to invite our emotions as guests into our house? Um, so if you wanted, before you go to bed tonight, to look at them together, I find that kind of cool. So this is The Night House by Billy Collins. Every day, the body works in the fields of the world, mending a stone wall or swinging a sickle through the tall grass, the grass of civics, the grass of money. And every night, the body curls around itself and listens for the soft bells of sleep. But the heart is restless and rises from the body in the middle of the night, leaves the trapezoidal bedroom with its thick, pictureless walls to sit by herself at the kitchen table and heat some milk in a pan. And the mind gets up too, 
puts on a robe, and goes downstairs, lights a cigarette, and opens a book on engineering. Even the conscience awakens and roams from room to room in the dark, darting away from every mirror like a strange fish. And the soul is up on the roof in her nightdress, straddling the ridge, singing a song about the wildness of the sea until the first rip of pink appears in the sky. Then they will all return to the sleeping body, the way a flock of birds settles back into a tree, resuming their daily colloquy, talking to each other or themselves, even through the heat of the long afternoons, which is why the body, this house of voices, sometimes puts down its metal tongs, its needle or its pen to stare into the distance, to listen to all its names being called before bending again to its labor. Now is the time in our service where we breathe together. Breathing in and breathing out. Sensing the loving presence of those all around us. We breathe in and out. We concentrate on our breath. We follow our breath to that deeper place inside. That spark of the divine within, that source of transcendent understanding. And breathing together, we enter a moment of sacred silence together. Remembering that in this congregation, human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of that silence. Breathing in, breathing out, in, out, we enter into the sacred silence together.
In a remote area of northeastern Afghanistan, an elite team of the already elite Navy SEAL Special Forces was on the move. Known as the Special Development Group, or DEVGRU, their mission was to capture Al-Wazoo, an al-Qaeda terrorist who had recently escaped a U.S. detention facility. Al-Wazoo could provide invaluable intelligence, so it was essential that the team capture him alive. As they moved stealthily toward a compound of buildings where they knew Al-Wazoo was hiding, a switch flipped within each of them. Their brain waves began to synchronize. The composition of the neurochemicals in their brains changed in similar ways. Suddenly, they were a collective, not individual actors. In this state of altered consciousness, this group flow state, they were able to move both quickly and quietly, communicating without verbalizations and with minimal physical gestures. Their movements also became synchronized. Their division of scanning for potential enemies side to side, ahead and behind, became automatic. The person best positioned to take leadership changed as needed without discussion or debate. As they approached the compound, they automatically split into teams that would surround it, as well as an assault team that would enter the compound and attempt the capture. The first room that the assault team entered was empty, but the next room, the next room was crowded with armed guards mixed in with unarmed women and children. It was vital that the assault team be able to disarm the guards with as little firefighting and unarmed casualties as possible. And in their state of altered consciousness, they were able to do exactly that. Read even minute facial expressions or body movements, sweep into, in and capture each of the guards quickly and disarm them. Leaving a couple of their team behind to watch over the guards and the civilians, the rest of them entered the next room, only to immediately encounter Al-Wazoo himself sitting in a chair, an AK-47 rifle in his hands. It would have been so easy to react immediately and fire upon him. In a normal state of consciousness, any one of the team might quite rationally have thought better to strike immediately than to give him time to open fire with that automatic weapon he's holding. But they did not. In their altered state, each of them had processed almost instantaneously that Al-Wazoo's eyes were closed. He was fast asleep. They made the capture without firing a shot, without any bloodshed whatsoever. And they could do that. They could do that because they had been selected by and trained by the military for this ability they had to enter into a group flow state. Well, back in the U.S. at a slightly different time period, an artist was installing her interactive sculpture, sound, and light in experiential art piece. As she worked, she lost all sense of time. Her sense of self dissolved into an experience of being part of something larger than her, 
Something that was luring her to create the piece of art that was coming to be all around her. The act of creation felt effortless, and she felt a great sense of richness, of vividness, and aliveness. In this flow state, she experienced a sense of right place and well-being. She felt a great sense of belonging and connection, even though at the present moment she was physically completely alone. Now, if someone could have scanned her brainwave patterns at that very moment, they would have looked almost identical to those of that DevGrew team during their mission in Afghanistan. Interestingly, though she wouldn't have used the same terminology, she had designed her art installation to stimulate virtually the same neurological responses in people that participated in it. Now, in a lab in another part of the country, a neuroscientist who specialized in neurotheology was studying long-term meditators and other spiritual practitioners to examine what was happening with their brainwaves, neurochemicals, breathing, heart rates, etc., when they entered a state of altered consciousness that these practices could bring about. Different religions have described these states as nirvana, transcendent, an experience of the holy or the divine, and in many other ways, depending upon the religion involved. Had this scientist been able to compare his neurological and biological findings from these spiritual practitioners with our artist and our Navy SEALs team, once again he would have discovered remarkably similar results. That neuroscientists, as well as many others, have also taken these findings and created biofeedback mechanisms that can help newer meditators, for instance, reach the desired state of flow much more quickly than the years of practice it can take otherwise to do it. By providing instantaneous feedback on heart rate, brainwave patterns, and the like, scientists have been able to help people more quickly focus their spiritual practices. And this may be consequential, because other research has found that more frequent experiences of such altered states are associated with increased life satisfaction, better health, a greater sense of belonging, increased compassion and empathy, and higher levels of cooperative social behavior, just to name a few of the potential benefits. So maybe that's why Google has worked with Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel of the Flow Genome Project to install a prototype research and training center dedicated to helping Google's employees experience such states of altered consciousness. They call it Flow Dojo. Cute, huh? Now, it also turns out that experiences of art, music, Nature, beauty, extreme physical activity, strong connections with other people, and certain types of sound and visual stimuli can also spontaneously generate these alternate states of consciousness. So, the Flow Dojo prototype combines training in classical spiritual techniques like meditation with biofeedback, art, music, all those other things, along with machines that can safely simulate the gravitational and centrifugal and other forces associated with extreme sports. You see, 
While it turns out that extreme, extreme sports can be one of the most powerful ways of inducing an alternate state of consciousness, a flow or transcendent or peak experience, they can also, by their very nature, be very dangerous. Take, for example, wing suit gliding through mountainous caverns and caves. Now, this is a sport wherein one straps on a suit that creates more bodily surface areas by stretching fabric between the legs and under the arms, essentially creating a wing-like structure that allows one to glide like a bird after launching from a high altitude, in this case, swooping through the narrow rock wall crevices of mountain caverns and caves. You can already probably imagine the potential problem. It's far too easy to make an error that sends the extreme sports enthusiasts smack into one of those rock walls. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, smashing into a high rock wall at a high rate of speed, that would pretty much ruin my peak experience that I had just been having. So the Flow Genome Project and Google provide machines that allow folks to experience the state of mind induced by this and other extreme sports, but to do so safely. So why are Google and other companies investing in how to help their employees experience these altered states of consciously more deeply and more often? Why are the Navy SEALs and other areas of the military hacking transcendence? Well, because it turns out the advantages they can convey upon individuals are also beneficial to the workplace and in combat situations. For instance, these altered states have been shown to increase creativity in the workplace, and that's even after employees have returned to a more normal state of consciousness. The sense of selflessness timelessness, effortless richness that occurs while in a state of flow, like I mentioned with our artist earlier, these can also create a sense of cohesiveness and cooperation in the workplace, increase job satisfaction, enhance productivity, and deepen commitment. And the Google employees that have gone through the training at the Flow Flow Dojo Center say that they find themselves more often slipping into a flow state both at work and at home without even having to try to do so. Now, I should mention that Kotler and Wheel in their book Stealing Fire and Elsewhere also describe certain types of excessive sex, drugs, and extreme breath holding that can induce an experience of transcendence. To my knowledge, Google hasn't been training their employees on any of these areas, and I should note that I am in no way recommending excessive sex, drugs, extreme breath-holding, or any combination thereof as a mean of obtaining transcendence this morning. And no, I don't know how excessive is defined in this context. Researchers also warn that there are also potential dangers in all this knowledge we're gathering about what happens in our brains and bodies when we experience a flow state. For one example, advertisers could insert in their ads visual, sound, and other cues that tend to induce these brainwave patterns we're talking about, and they could use those to manipulate us into associating their product with the heightened sense of well-being that often results from these brainwave patterns. 
Extreme sports and some of the drugs that can lead to experiencing flow can also be highly addictive. And it's possible that these altered states themselves can become addictive as people learn to more easily enter into them. There's some early evidence of this. The thing is, we can't function if we live in these states of transcendent experience all the time. The idea is that we carry out of them values and understandings that enhance our day-to-day functioning and state of mind. Jack Kornfield, American Buddhist author and teacher, writes about exactly this in his book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. As a minister, I also worry that if Google starts opening more non-church-based centers for hacking transcendence, they're going to put me right out of a job. In fact, I was going to call this sermon, Google is really pissing me off, but I wasn't sure if I could say that in the sanctuary. Oops. Actually, I think that these things we are learning from science can help inform how we do church and can supplement and enhance our personal spiritual practices. In fact, it looks like in our back lot they may have put one of those extreme sports contraptions for us back there. I don't know. Part of the construction. And though we are learning a lot about all of this and the neurology and biology that's behind having these experiences, for me at least, this in no way robs them of a spiritual dimension, nor does it remove a sense of awe, wonder, and mystery. We still have so much to explore about why we have this ability to enter these altered states to begin with and why they seem to be so beneficial to us. This may be yet another area where religion and science have the potential to inform rather than be in conflict with one another. After all, it is entirely possible that religious rites and rituals may well have been among the earliest ways that we learned to hack transcendence. And I do think that, especially for us as Unitarian Universalists, these Peak or transcendent experiences are a core element of our faith going all the way back to at least our transcendentalist forebearers like you heard about in the story earlier. We list these transcendent experiences as the first of the six sources of our faith. And here in this church, we list first among our religious values that we read together earlier, transcendence, to connect with wonder and awe of the unity of life. So, the rituals, music, sermons, readings, fellowship opportunities, and many other activities we engage in here at the church are intended, at least in part, to help lead us into this type of experience. I know for me, very often, our music program moves me into an altered and wonderful state of being, Another recent example was when Meg talked about the Me Too movement and then offered a ritual folks could participate in afterwards. It was moving and powerful and difficult and cathartic, and I suspect for many of us it forever altered our consciousness about that subject. I think also that A key reason we seek such experience when we have gathered together as a religious community is that they can help move us toward and even into another of our religious values, transformation, 
which we define as to pursue the growth that changes our lives and heals our world. In describing transformation this way, we are basically talking about creating the beloved community. Now, the term beloved community gets used fairly frequently in religious circles. Today, though, I am using it with specific meaning. Part of that meaning is the community of love, compassion, empathy, and care we work to create at this church. We do that through our covenant, a set of promises that we make to one another about how we will walk together in the ways of love. This is not a sappy, sugary, sweet view of beloved community, though. It acknowledges that creating such a religious community is hard work. We need our covenant precisely because we will fail each other and ourselves sometimes. And our covenant helps us get back to the ways of love and right relationship. And we do all this because it is more than worth it. As one theologian put it, the divine is to be found in the messiness of making and maintaining loving religious community together. Now, another part of the meaning of beloved community is our participation in a much broader movement to create more loving and just relationships and institutions in our larger world. This is the beloved community which Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King envisioned. Here is how one of King's followers described this beloved community. An inclusive, interdependent space based on love, justice, compassion, responsibility, shared power, and a deep and abiding respect for all people, places, and things that radically transforms individuals and restructures institutions. So, beloved community calls us to dismantle racist systems and institutions, for instance. Indeed, it calls us to work for justice against all forms of oppression, as well as the betterment of all living creatures and our environment. It requires transformation that changes our lives and heals our world. An inclusive space based upon love, justice, compassion, responsibility, shared power, and a deep and abiding respect for all people, places, and things. Wow. I think creating that might be yet another way we could hack transcendence, radically transforming ourselves and revealing our path toward restructuring our institutions to benefit all people and our world. That is transcendence beckoning us toward transformation. That is the power of beloved community. And amen to that. Now please join me in saying our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again.
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.